and to die is gain. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You'd be hard-pressed to find another book in the Bible containing more favorite quotes or, uh, or sound bites than the book of Philippians. Uh, as you uh, look through the book, you see verses that you've heard or memorized your entire life if you've been a Christian uh, for a significant amount of time. Uh, we're going to have a problem here, Lisa. You've got my wrong PowerPoint in there. I'm just going to tell you off the bat, we're going to have a major problem. Can you convert that to the new one real quick? Thumbs up. All right. You'd have a, I'll just share some of those quotes with you, and then we'll, we'll get the PowerPoint up here in a minute. In, in chapter 1, you have, uh, be confident that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus. In, at the end of chapter 1, it says, For me to live is Christ and... To die is gain. You've heard that one. Uh, The Bible says in chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It talks about in chapter 3 that we are citizens of a heavenly country. In chapter 4, we we have the verse that that, uh, is... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Made famous by Steph Curry on his shoes. Which is really popular when you win and an athlete puts it on their their jersey or their back, but when they lose, it's not nearly as effective. But uh, the uh, there, there's a danger in knowing these lines so well that they can take on a life of their own. Uh, whenever we learn these verses and don't put them in context... We, we can misunderstand what God's trying to tell us and, and maybe even more dangerous than misunderstanding what God is trying to tell us is we can misapply uh, the, those truths of Scripture. I'll show them to you again so I can get to my right place, all right? So, so it is important for us to know the context of Philippians and it's important for us to, to put those great verses in, in context. But I also want us to, to, to realize that the book of Philippians is far more than sound bites. The book of Philippians is this powerful book that, that God has given to the church to help us understand what it means to relate to one another in submission to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, to, so for what we're going to do for the rest of the summer is we're just going to walk verse by verse. I've never preached through the book of Philippians ever in my life. And so I thought, what a better way to spend the summer than to just go verse by verse through this great book and and dig in to see what it has for me as a believer and for us as a congregation. So, so, so we'll begin today. But before we do, let me set a little context this first week. The city of Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome. It was a part of the Roman Empire, but when the best a transportation you have is is horse. That's a long uh, way uh, from from the hub of where everything happened. It, it was located in what is modern day Greece. It wasn't a large city. Uh, by the time that Paul starts a church in Philippi, there were maybe ten thousand people there. 
but it was really diverse. It was comprised of those with a heritage from the local area, those Macedonians who grew up in that area. It was also made up of people who had ancestry uh, connected to the Greek Empire. Uh, Alexander's influence was all over the city of Philippi. But the majority of the city was made up of Roman citizens, but they were a unique group of citizens. They were ex-military. To have an outpost 800 miles away from your hub, you've got to have a very secure place. And so a lot of military spent many, many years in this place. And because of this, they grew to love it, and they stayed. When I pastored in Hopkinsville, the city had about half the people uh, who grew up in Hopkinsville and half the people who moved there from Fort Campbell. They were stationed there for a long time, and they just decided to stay. That's kind of the picture of Philippi. It's this city that, that, that was, was very diverse, but it had this patriotic flair to it, a very strong military pre- presence. Uh, the, the city was religiously very pluralistic. Um, an archaeologist who excavated the old city noticed that there was this cliff uh, at the edge of where the city was, and it had carvings along the wall, and there were 40 deities carved into the wall, and they weren't all from the Roman pantheon. They weren't all from the Greek pantheon. There were lots of, of local and uh, kind of uh, national deities carved in there. And so so they believed that the city was, for the most part, open-minded. And, and sometimes we read history, and Roman history is a little confusing because it varied emperor to emperor. Uh, and, and during the time that the Church of Philippi was started, and even when the early church was uh, starting, Romans were pretty tolerant of of other religions as long as you were good citizens, you paid your taxes, and you didn't cause trouble. Now, Jews became very persecuted about, right after the Church of Philippi was started, and it wasn't long after that that Christians fell under the hand of persecution as well. But for the most part, when the church was started, it was a very diverse church and a very tolerant place. Well, Paul, on his second missionary journey, he starts a church there, and he, he does so by introducing the gospel to a lady who was teaching a study of the Old Testament named Lydia. Uh, she was a seller of fine purples and pr- apparently a lady of means and influence. And, and he introduced her to the gospel and God gripped her heart. She became a believer and she started Bible studies with others in the area. Her household was saved. And before long, a church launched there. So so you can imagine a church in a place like Philippi is also very diverse. In Acts chapter 16, you find the story of the church at Philippi uh, being started. In that church, you find rich people, you find poor people, and you find working class people. Uh, the, in fact, the first three people who were believers that were, are recorded in Acts chapter 16 are Lydia, a seller of purples, a lady of influence, the Philippian jailer, who was a working-class guy, uh, and then a slave girl who was possessed by a spirit uh, that was delivered, and that caused some turmoil there in the city at that time. But you had this very diverse place. Uh, Lydia was Asian, the slave girl was probably Greek, and the jailer was probably a Roman soldier. Uh, but, but what's remarkable is the gospel led them to embrace one another and they called each other brothers and sisters 
in Christ. Now, this church not only was diverse, but it was extremely loyal. Uh, Philippians were early adopters. Uh, from day one, Paul had converts, and they were having initial success. But, you know, and, and that's exciting, but let's be honest, lots of things have initial success. You know, eight-track tapes were successful for a while. But it didn't take long for, for, for that to wear out. But, but, but the church at Philippi was no flash in the pan. You know, they were with him through the exciting startup period, and they were with him through spiritual recession. And at the time of this writing, they had been with him for a significant amount of time. Uh, so, so it's this very loyal, loyal church. And, and it was also a giving church. Uh, as the Lord blessed them, they blessed others. One time the Jerusalem church was in a mess and they sent an offering to them. Paul's mission endeavors were supported by some of their best leaders going alongside of him. And monetarily they supported Paul's work as well. They were so giving that Paul holds them up as the prime example of this is what it means to sacrificially give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says to the church at Corinth, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. I think he has Philippi in mind if you read the letters. He, he says, During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. Verse 3, he says, I testify that on their own accord, according to their own ability and beyond their ability, they begged us for the opportunity to give. They begged us for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. Well, this is what brings us to the occasion of Paul's letter. Paul's imprisoned, and while he's in prison, he receives another gift from the church at Philippi. And he wants to send them a thank you note, and while addressing the, them in this thank you note, he, he deals with some issues that they're facing. So let's dive in. You ready? Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints uh, in Christ Jesus who are, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Uh, he begins reminding them immediately of their identity, uh, of what it means to be a Christian. In verse 1, notice he calls them saints. We don't use that in Baptist life much, do we? Part of the reason we don't use the term saints much in Baptist life is because uh, it, uh, the, the term can be confusing. Uh, because since the second century, the Catholic Church has venerated courageous, sacrificial, insightful Christians as saints. And a large number of churches uh, in the Catholic uh, sect believe that we should pray to departed saints so that through intercession we can secure favor with God. Um, that's pretty foreign to me. I pray to God there's one mediator we heard this morning through man and God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, so I don't pray to, to saints. But I ran a bookstore in a Catholic community. Uh, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I, I, my wife and I owned a Christian bookstore. I guess we were 25, 26 years old. Uh, we owned a bookstore in Tell City, Indiana, right across the river from uh, Hallsville, Kentucky, which I know helps you. Uh, but anyhow... <laughs> Tell City, Indiana was a town of about 7,000 people, and 6,995 6, of them were Catholic. And I started a Protestant bookstore there. You know, that's a lot of faith to do that. But, but uh, invariably, we would have people come in, and they wanted to buy medals of the saints. 
Now, if you're not raised Catholic or have no experience with this, you don't understand, and I did not, and I had conviction that you shouldn't pray to the saints, and so I didn't carry Catholic medals. But one guy told me, he said, I've got to have a St. Christopher medal. And he came in all the time, and we talked, and we were friends. And I said, why do you need a St. Christopher medal? And he said, I'm selling my house. I said, what? He said, everybody knows if you're selling the house, you've got to bury a medal of St. Christopher in your yard. And I thought, you're crazy. You know, because he said, if you bury this in the yard, this is going to, you know, help your house sell. Well, we had a good relationship, and we talked about it, and he went and found him a St. Christopher medal. He buried it in his yard, and he came in one day, and he was just skipping and happy, and I said, what's up? He said, he, he said, man, I'm in a great mood. I said, why'd you sell your house? He said, no, but I sold my car. I don't know if it works that way or not, but, you know, that's a... Uh, but the... The Bible does not teach, and certainly Paul is not meaning by his use of the word saints that there are super people who we can pray to in heaven who intercede on our behalf. There's one one who intercedes between God and man, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession on our behalf. But when Paul says to all the saints, he's not talking about the dead people of Philippi. He's talking about the living people in Philippi. He's talking about those who've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word saint means holy, set apart. It's got the idea of being separate, and it's used to describe God, and that makes sense because he is holy. He is set apart. Uh, we, we sang this morning, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. He is the great one who is different than us. And God, by his very nature, is holy, and everything he does it is morally and ethically perfect. And I'm really comfortable describing God this way. But I get a little uncomfortable describing me this way because I know me. I, I, I know that I'm sinful. I know that my nature is to be disobedient. I know that y'all's nature is to be rebellious. Our nature is to be worldly. That is our nature. And yet Paul looks at this same this this church in Philippi who is filled up with the same type of people and he says you are saints why would he say that because of the next two words to all the saints in Christ this preposition ends extremely important. Our holiness is not in our courage. It's not in our self-righteousness. It's not in our effort. It's not in our moral goodness. It's not in anything that our nature uh, has uh, inherently inside. Our sainthood is completely dependent upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are saints who are set apart because we are in Jesus. But he also says that he's a slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Uh, this Your Bible might say servant, but the word is doulos, and it literally means slave, one who's been bought with a price, who's completely at the disposal of the purchaser. Now, obviously, Paul's not endorsing slavery, but he's using a metaphor to speak of the relationship that he has with Christ. He says, I follow him. I'm his servant. I submit to him. 
I obey him. Someone once said, whom Jesus saves, Jesus enslaves. Whom Jesus saves, that person also finds themselves in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. But we're not slaves out of compulsion. We're slaves because of Christ's work on the cross. We're slaves not because we are fearful of Christ. We are slaves because we're devoted to Christ. Uh, he, he doesn't dominate us. He, he, he died for us and that makes us want to love Him. We're not slaves out of fear but out of gratitude. And one of the byproducts of being in Christ is we develop a deep relationship with other believers. Because we have this common faith, we love each other. I mean, think about this. We are a very diverse group here. And you might say, oh, we're not that diverse. Yeah, we're really diverse. You know, we, we come from different perspectives. You know, praying for our country today, some of you were praying, God, help President Trump. Others were praying, God, get rid of President Trump in the same building. But it's not our political agenda that bonds us together. Some of you come from from, from, uh, sophisticated uh, upbringings. You you are are children of, uh, 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 of means. And you come from a background of where things have, have, you've had other opportunities that some have not. Some have come from pretty tough upbringings. Some of you come from a home where everything was like the Cleavers. Others come from a home where it was more like Roseanne. You know? But yet, even though we're from this diverse background, We're united in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love those of you who differ politically from me. And I love those of you who root for Louisville. I love those of you who who see the world even a little differently than me. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're unified in Him. And that can overcome a lot of barriers. That's why Paul says these types of words about the Philippians. I give thanks to God every time I think of you. He he says in verse 4, I pray for you with joy. Every time I pray, he goes on in verse 7 to say, and it's right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart. He says in verse 8, God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has a deep love for the church at Philippi. And I don't know about you, but I have a deep love for the people that God has put in my life who are brothers and sisters. My parents will be listening to this. I love my parents. They're believers in Jesus Christ, and I'm so grateful. I have loving parents. But I've said this so many times, and I mean it. I am as close in my relationship to some believers as I am in my relationship to my blood family. Because we're united in Christ. I can talk about Jurenji, who's the pastor of the church in Palmares in Brazil. 
who though we've only spent about seven weeks of our life together, when we talk, whether it's been months or years, we're brothers and we're close. I could talk about a man by the name of Tim Sal, who was the chairman of the deacons at my former church. We maybe talk once every four to six months. But I'm confident that if I were hurting, I could call him and I would have a brother who would be standing beside me. There, there is something about faith in Christ that binds us together. And, and, and the Greek word for this, this bond is, is koinonia. I'm I'm sure you've heard this, but it means close relationship and it involves common interest. And it was used in Paul's day about marriage and family relationships and friendships and business partnerships and common possession of property and citizenship. These were all forms of koinonia, but Paul speaks of a fellowship that's different, a fellowship in Christ where we are family and where we're partners, that's the way the word's translated in this section. And it changes the way that we think of each other. And because we're family, we're patient with one another. And because we're family, we, we, we accept one another. And because we're family, we love one another. And because we're family, we even sacrifice for one another. We give up our comfort and ease, our time off, our resources to help our brothers We think about other people's interests who are our church family instead of our own. And I love these kind of relationships, but you know and I know they don't come easy. Biblical fellowship often requires us to leave our comfort zones. And let's be honest about this. Some of you don't want to engage in fellowship for this very reason, that you would have to leave your comfort zone. You you don't know what to do when you encounter someone who's different than you. Or what if you get trapped in an uncomfortable conversation? Or maybe they talk too much. Or maybe they have a viewpoint that's different than yours. Fellowship often takes us out of our comfort zones. And you know we fight hard to not be in an uncomfortable situation. Right? Have you ever been to somebody's house uh, where about maybe 8 to 10 other couples or uh, 15 to 20 other guests were going to be there? And you pull up to their house, and maybe you're 10 minutes late, and there's already about 10 cars there, but have you ever noticed nobody's in the driveway? Right? How come? We all want to make sure if it's uncomfortable, we got a way of escape. Right? We want to make sure if we've got something else going on in our life, we can get out of there. That's the way a lot of people are with fellowship. They don't want to allow people in too close to their life, so they make sure that they leave enough buffer to have a way of escape. But real fellowship says that I'm not looking for an escape. Real fellowship is I'll be your family no matter what. Verse 5, Paul says, we're partners. We have this fellowship because of the gospel. But we not only have this fellowship because of the being in Christ, we also have this fellowship because we are on a, a gospel mission. We partner together to advance the gospel. Partnership or fellowships is not just based on our agreement that Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah, that's enough. But our partnership is also on this commitment to advance the gospel. The Philippians were so grateful for the good news that 
that Paul shared with him, they started supporting his ministry with prayer and giving. And, and let me show you a little, a couple of things that I learned from this section. Number one, we, we should be working to advance the gospel. This is directive. That's why I challenge you to do who's your one. I encourage you to keep talking about your one, keep praying for your one, keep sharing with your one. Somebody said, what do I do after I've shared the gospel with them? Keep praying that God would soften their heart and that he would bring them to faith in Christ. We, we should share the gospel. We should be partners in the gospel. But I also think that we learned that true brotherhood's developed when you do ministry together. For those of y'all who've been in church a long time, have you ever heard Paul's letter to the Philippians described as Paul's love letter to the Philippians? Some of you heard that? Yeah. That's because there was some bond between them that was different, and I really believe it's because they had partnered in ministry together. There's just this, this something, this bond that happens when you work side by side. Have you ever been on mission trips and you went with a group of people maybe you didn't know before, and after you came back, your relationship's different. <laughs> Most of the time it's good. You know, <laughs> because there's a bond that develops when we work together. Uh, you know, we, your life group builds a wheelchair ramp together. You, you, maybe you taught children's life group together. Maybe you held doors open together for church. If you've done these things, you know it's true. When you partner for the gospel, your love grows uh, for the people you serve with. And Paul had developed a deep love for the Philippians. And the Philippians developed a love for him. So they partnered together. And they did it from the very first day until now. And Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the very end until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had good reason to believe this. If you read the next verse, in verse 7, he says, it's right for me to think this way because you've been partners with me in grace. When I was in prison, when things were going bad, you were there. When people were standing up against us and I had to defend the gospel, you were there. Even when I was going into an area where people thought we were crazy, you were there. One of the things that I think true fellowship has is a commitment to stick together no matter what. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is what makes me sad about the modern church. Consumerism is running rampant in the modern church where we don't think about our brothers and sisters. We think about ourselves. We live in a society built around making ourselves happy and getting what we want. But that robs us of, of the potential of real relationships. We don't fully engage in church. And listen, let's be honest, and this applies here too, we go if we feel like it. That, that's not brotherhood. That's... A self-service, self-serving. We give when it's convenient and if we have enough to do everything we want first. We get involved if it sounds like fun, but we jump ship if it gets hard. And I want to tell you, you can choose to do that. 
And you can choose to do that at Porter, and there are folks who do that here at Porter. But you will miss koinonia. You'll miss brotherhood and true fellowship. I realize some of you may have been here for years, and you don't feel deep brotherhood. And I want to give you some practical tips. I've listed these out. You don't even have to take notes in your bulletin, but I've listed these out for you. But I just real quickly want to give you some insight of how you can move into the family. Seek seek to develop meaningful relationships. Many of you have friendships outside the church, and that's great. And I want you to have those relationships. But the Bible stresses the importance of having meaningful relationships with the people who worship with you week in and week out. So seek those out. Let's not just be a friendly church, but let's be a church that's marked by friendships. Some struggle with getting started. Show up early to church and stay late. That'll help you out. Somebody will talk to you if you don't leave before I do. They'll say something to you. But, <laughs> and I know right now our hallways present a challenge. It's crowded and tight. One of the things we're trying to do as we change our building is to create entryways where if you stop and talk to people, you're not blocking everybody from getting to lunch. You know, we're, we're trying to make it a little more uh, uh, accommodating for us to, to be able to fellowship with one another. So, so it takes some effort right now. I get it. Come early, grab a cup of coffee downstairs. We have enough for everybody. Be approachable. Smile. Be friendly. Make efforts to start conversations. And then I would say, number two, don't just try to make fellowship. Join a life group. In life group, there's Bible study and prayer, but there's also opportunity to get to know people. And you know what you'll encounter when you go to life group? Other sinners just like you. You will. Uh, and some of them are going to be over-opinionated. Some of them are going to be too talkative. But you're going to meet brothers and sisters. And it will give you a chance to share agape love with them. Number three, practical tip. You want to help build fellowship in our church? You want to help build family? Invite a college student out to lunch. What I've found is college students will hang around old people if they buy meals. Right? And you don't even have to go big. I mean, if you'll buy food, they'll show up. But here's what happens. You'll develop koinonia with people. It's not that hard. Uh, Speaking of college students and singles, offer to serve our young families. Offer to watch kids so they can go on a date. Involve yourself in their lives. Get to know them. For everybody, visit a shut-in. Maybe take a a friend and say, hey, let's go visit the nursing home. Maybe we don't even have members there. That's okay. You can go visit folks and be nice, but but the going together will help. But if we've got uh, shut-ins who you know, visit them. Read a scripture. Pray a prayer. Sing a song with them. Listen to them. We want you to have deep relationships. I could go on and on here. But the theme of Philippians is is this partnership in the gospel. And this partnership led Paul to pray for his friends. And it is a natural thing for you to do, to pray for your friends and family. Philippians 1.4 later uh, tells us that Paul 
prayed for them always. Later in verse 19, we find that they reciprocate the prayer for him. In Acts chapter 2, we are told that early Christians devoted themselves to prayer. It's what marked their koinonia, their fellowship. And I, I, I hope life group teachers, if you're in here, if your class is not praying for one another, I hope that you will push for them to pray for one another. One of the ways you could do this is just during the week, you could say, uh, uh, would you be willing to pray for John this week? Or would maybe you can put two ladies or two men together and they can commit to praying for each other's prayer requests, but pray for one another. Your love for one another will grow. Pray with one another. Pa- Let's look at what Paul prays for the Philippians. Verse 9, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. It was natural for him to pray this because Jesus said, if you're really believers, you're going to be known by your love. And the word for love here is agape, which is unconditional love, a a willful choice to love unconditionally. And he wants this type of love to keep growing. He wants them to mature in this. And he says, if you mature in this love, it's got to get into your brain as well. That your love will keep on growing in knowledge. The word... Knowledge is used, this word for knowledge is gnosis. It's used 20 times in the New Testament and it always refers to a knowledge of spiritual things. Here, Paul connects true love with knowledge. And that tells me that real love is grounded in real truth. The world has hijacked the word loved. Love to the world means whatever someone makes it to be. For example, if you're in an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone, The world says, if you're in love, it's okay. But the Bible defines any sexual relationship outside the bounds of marriage of one man and one woman as as sinful. And it's not love, according to the Bible. If you're married and you find your feelings for your spouse waning and your feelings for someone else growing, the world says, love yourself and be happy. But God says, that's not love. At least not biblical love, real love and the truth of God's word go hand in hand. Verse 10, or excuse me, continuing in verse 9. I pray that your love will keep growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you can approve things that are superior. He prays that they would have discernment to to determine. uh, uh, It was a a method of testing metals uh, or coins so that you could see Uh, what their value was, so that they could determine what is superior or what is excellent. Guys, we live in a day of information overload and options, and it's tough knowing what's best. And approving what is superior takes skill, a skill that's given by the Holy Spirit. It, uh, it, It is figuring out what's most important and valuable, how to spend your time, which activities you choose to be involved on, how you're going to spend your money, and on and on. And it's not so much distinguishing between right and wrong, it's distinguishing between good and best. Knowing the difference between good and better is the evidence that you're growing in love. When you grow in love, God's Spirit begins to shape your desires and we begin to develop taste for the things that count and last. I'd like for you to do a self-inventory for a second. I'm going to wrap up in about three minutes or less. But I'd like you to take this self-inventory. Am I drawn to things that fade away? Or am I drawn to things that last? 
And if you're drawn to things that are here today and gone tomorrow and I just want one more experience, it tells me your love in Jesus is not growing. When your love in Jesus is growing, you're drawn to things that are superior and better. Christians should seek inner purity, he says in the next verse, verse 10. He says, so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure. Pure refers to this inner quality of genuineness. It comes from two words that are kind of meshed together. Uh, the word for sun, like outside sun, and judge. Before you purchased a piece of pottery, you needed to hold the piece up to the sun to see if it was genuine because dishonest merchants uh, would use wax to fix the cracks in the pottery and then they'd paint over them. But when you held it up to the sun, you could see the wax and thus sun and judge. Basically, uh, it, it looked good, but it wasn't pure. Paul said you need to be pure on the inside. But he also talks about that you need to be blameless. The word blameless refers to your outer conduct. It meant no stumbling. And people should be able to look at your life and not see anything in them that would cause them to stumble. So what Paul's teaching us here is Christians should seek inner purity and externally be blameless. You should be so pure and blameless that you're living a life that God would say is one of integrity. I want to start wrapping up by giving you just a couple more things. Number one, your Sunday person needs to match your Monday person. And if it's not, there's a problem. It's not only a problem for you, it's a problem for us. Because it hurts our fellowship and it stains what we're trying to portray to the world. Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love. Here Paul says, your love helps you approve things that are excellent excellent and live in a pure way there are a lot of people who don't believe that christianity holds much water and i think the reason is is they don't see the love and purity from us i pray that we would live lives that would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ not because we're good or better but because christ lives in us and we would do so for the glory and praise of god I pray we glorify him in our faith that we would be in Christ alone. I pray that we would glorify him in our relationships, that we would truly love one another. And I pray we would glorify him by living a life of integrity that would bring honor and praise to his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words in this great book. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to find comfort in the fact that we are saints saved by Jesus alone made holy by his shed blood. I pray that we would develop deep partnerships with one another for the gospel's sake. And I pray, Father God, that we would live holy lives as we leave this place, blameless and pure. In Jesus' name, amen.